0: All right, so I'm going to start our sermon today with a question, and uh, you can you can raise your hand if you don't want to. that's all right too. but how many of you have ever said something with good intentions that didn't quite come out right? Yeah, me too. Maybe I should raise both hands, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to give you an example <laughs> this is this is a really embarrassing one for me. Um, so you guys probably know this, but I uh, I'm pretty involved at the YMCA, and, and I like to work out at the YMCA. And, and while I'm there, um, I have these these shirts that say chaplain. And, you know, so people know that they can come to me if they need to talk about something, if they've got something they're worried about in their life, if they need somebody to pray with them or, or, or things like that. And, and I've had a lot of really meaningful conversations while I've been at the YMCA because I have my chaplain shirt on. And uh, one of the things I like to do is I like to be encouraging and nice and friendly to people while I'm at the YMCA. Well, a couple of months ago, this backfired on me. Uh, there was a couple of, uh, I'd say they were high school students, and they were doing squats. And uh, I, I don't know if you know this about guys, but we have this tendency to do more than we should sometimes. I, I hate to generalize, but. And, and, and in guys, that manifests itself by, uh, in, in the gym, by loading up the squat rack with like nine times your body weight and then breaking yourself. Uh, But these guys didn't do that, and so I wanted to compliment them. I wanted to to say, hey, you know, you guys did really good squats. It was good form. It was an appropriate weight, and and I just wanted to be encouraging to them. And so they get done with their squats, and I said, hey, guys, those are good-looking squats. And they gave me this look, and I immediately knew that something had gotten lost in translation. I was being encouraging. And they gave me this look and they didn't say anything but what their look said is thanks a lot fat old man. And I didn't understand that at the time so I go home and I tell Leah and I said I'm just really puzzled by this interaction. I don't know what went wrong and she said you gotta put yourself in their shoes. To them you're just a fat old man. And I said let's go over that one piece at a time. And she said you are over a decade older than them and they're 18-year-old, they're, they're fit and they're active and you're... And I said, I'm what? And she said, well, you're just older than them. And, and I was trying to be so encouraging and it just didn't come out right. And sometimes we all have that tendency. We, we say things and we want to be encouraging and it just doesn't quite hit the mark, and it's awkward, or it, it turns into a negative comment, and it hurts somebody's feelings. Well, well, Jesus doesn't do that. There are some people here in Mark chapter 12 that are really trying to trip Jesus up. And the reason they're trying to trip Jesus up is because in Mark 11, as, as Charlie just talked about a little bit ago, Jesus makes this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that's a controversial thing. Right? You know who makes triumphal entries? People who are conquering. People who are entering the city as military conquerors. There are parades and confettis and leaders sitting on white horses. And Jesus makes a triumphal entry. A little bit of a different triumphal entry, mind you. But Jesus makes a triumphal entry. And people got a problem with this. And then after he makes his triumphal entry, he goes into the temple and he does something even more controversial. He starts flipping over tables and driving people out with a bullwhip. And he says, you've turned my father's house, a house that is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And people have a problem with this. And so the religious authorities, they go, hey, Jesus, you know, we, we've got a couple of questions for you. Um, just, just out of curiosity, if you don't mind answering these questions for us, by whose authority are you doing these things? And this would be an opportunity for Jesus to say something with good intentions that just misses the mark. But Jesus doesn't miss the mark. So he knows something. He knows that, that the religious leaders are just trying to trip him up. Because if he says, well, I'm doing this by God's authority, then they're going to say, you see, he blasphemed. We must put him to death. But if he says, well, I do this by my own authority, they're going to say, well, <laughs> only God could give a person that authority, and they'd still want to put him to death. So Jesus answers them with a question that puts them in a similar conundrum. And we don't have time to, to look at how he we answered. We've got to move on. Um, but, but Jesus answers their question appropriately based on the spirit of the question they're asking. He answers it right. Well, the religious leaders, they're not satisfied getting beat, and so they ask him another question. They say, Jesus, tell us, should a person pay taxes to Caesar or not? Again, they're trying to trip Jesus up. And, and so Jesus knows, well, if I answer, yeah, sure, you're supposed to pay taxes to Caesar. Of course you are. Well, then they're going to say, well, see, Jesus has got an idol. Jesus has got an idol. You probably shouldn't follow Jesus. He's got an idol he's worshiping. And if they say, and if Jesus says, no, he shouldn't pay taxes. Well, see, Caesar, Jesus is trying to overthrow the Roman government. We've got to kill him. So Jesus knows that the stakes are high in this question as well. And what does he say? He says, get out a coin. Look at it. Whose face is on that coin? I say, well, Caesar. And they say, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And so Jesus, in another moment where he could have said something that comes out wrong, he doesn't do that because he knows something. He knows about the scribes and the Pharisees. He knows, he knows that they're looking for a reason to accuse. They're not looking for an answer to their question and that's an important idea. These people are looking for a reason to accuse him, not an answer to their question. Here's why this is an important idea, because a lot of people today are looking for a reason to accuse Christians. A lot of people today are looking for a reason to write off Christianity. A lot of people today are looking for confirmation of an existing bias, and a lot of people today are looking for a reason to hate Christians. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we live and minister in a world where people are looking to confirm a bias that they already have about Christians? Where people are looking to say, see, I told you so. How do we live and minister in that world? Well, there's two more questions that get asked of Jesus after this. The first is another attempt to get Jesus to say something stupid. But the last one is different. If you were listening during our call to worship, but uh, when, when Nancy read it to us, the text says that one of the scribes, hearing hearing that Jesus had answered well, asked him another question. He heard that Jesus had answered wisely. And there's a change in his heart. He's not asking to trip Jesus up. He's genuinely curious about, the question, or about this question and wants an answer from someone who's wise. And the, the answer to this question gives us a clue about how we can live and minister in a world where people just want to deny Christians and say, see, I told you so. We'll pick it up in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28, as we begin to answer this question, how do we live and minister in a world where people don't want to think Christianity's good? So one of the teachers of the religious law was standing there, and he was listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? It's a good question. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of the religious law replied, well, well said, teacher. You've spoken truth by saying that there is only one God and no other, and I know it's important to love him with all your heart and with my understanding all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So it's a great question that this man asks What's the most important commandment? He says, If I'm going to take the whole Bible and put it into an action step, what am I doing? Jesus says, love the Lord with everything you've got and make sure you love your neighbor as yourself. I propose to you that that is the gospel in do this format. That's the gospel in do this format. Love the Lord with everything you've got and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. So if we accept that, it leaves us with two important questions. How do we love God? How do we love God? How do we love neighbors? If that's the gospel in a form that we are supposed to take and apply, how do we do those things? How do we love God and how do we love our neighbors? Let's start at the beginning. How do we love God? We'll start where Jesus starts. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We'll sum it up. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got. With everything you've got. And at first glance, this, this may not seem terribly helpful. If that's what you feel, I, I sympathize with you. Uh, all we got to do is love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, is that it? It's kind of like the, uh, the, the guy who asked his friend, Hey, how do you become a millionaire? And his friend replies, Step one, get a million dollars. Right? That's kind of what this answer feels like to me. It's almost too big to be helpful. But if we dig a little deeper, if we look a little bit closer, I think we can put it into some more manageable ideas. Alan Cole uh, wrote about this passage. He said, the heart of true religion is seen to lie not in negative commands, but in a positive loving attitude towards God and others. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Christianity isn't about making sure that we stay away from everything that could possibly be dangerous. He says Christianity is about actively pursuing loving God and loving people. If we focus on that, if we focus on loving God and loving people, we don't have time for the things that would destroy us. I'll illustrate it this way. Um, Hypothetically speaking, let's say And again, I I can't stress this enough. Hypothetically speaking, I have a problem with Little Debbie snack cakes. I don't know what you all are laughing about. This is a hypothetical illustration. So hypothetically, I have a problem with Little Debbie snack cakes, specifically um, double-decker fudge rounds. Anybody ever heard of one of these things? They are straight from the devil himself. They are delicious. Meant only to deceive mankind and sway him from the truth in a delicious, delicious way. So uh, let's say I've got a problem, hypothetically, with double-decker fudge rounds. And uh, I, know, I know that they're not healthy for me and I shouldn't eat double-decker fudge rounds. And so uh, I'm on this new diet and I spend my day saying, Don't eat double-decker fudge rounds. Don't eat double-decker fudge rounds. Don't eat double-decker fudge rounds. And what am I spending all my time thinking about? how much easier is it going to be for me to give in to temptation when that's the only thing that's on my mind? Jesus says, think about vegetables. No, I'm just kidding. Every metaphor breaks down at some point. The point is, don't spend all your time thinking about the thing that you're supposed to avoid. Spend time thinking about, hey, how am I going to love my neighbor today? How am I going to love God today? Not don't eat double-decker fudge rounds. Jesus is saying, instead of spending all your time thinking about what you shouldn't do, think about what you should do. Paul says the same thing in Philippians. Here's what he writes. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Think about those things. Don't spend all your time thinking about the things that are wrong and negative and bad because then what are you thinking about? Double-decker fudge rounds. <laughs> You're going to get one thing out of this sermon, and it's going to be that. I'm very sorry to the people who make Little Debbie snack cakes. Your sales are about to take a dip. Don't spend all your time thinking about how you can avoid what's wrong. In the first century world, though, you've got to understand that is a bombshell statement because they lived under the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they were consumed with rule following and ritual purity and Jesus says none of that matters if you don't love God. It doesn't matter what rules you follow if you don't love God. It doesn't matter what rules you follow if you don't love your neighbor. So stop thinking about what's wrong and start thinking about what's right. Some of you are going, yeah, well, that's that's great. But you still haven't talked about how we can apply the idea of loving God in a practical way. Let's go there now. I'm going to give you a few ideas based on very specifically what Jesus says. Here we go, let God change your heart. Let God change your heart. Let God put a new spirit in you. Know that God loves you and act like somebody God loves. Let God change your heart. I'm gonna give you a second to put those down in your outline uh, and then we'll we'll talk about those things a little more specifically. First we gotta let God change your heart. And, And I don't know where you're at in your faith, but I know that if you have breath in your lungs, God has work to do in your life. That's part of discipleship. We're always being changed by Christ. We never reach a point of full maturity in our faith. There is always a next step for us to take in our faith. It's not something we'll ever get over as long as we're alive. And God is going to be transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And the more we allow God to transform us, the better we'll be at sharing the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that God is putting into our lives. So let God change your heart. On a daily basis, let him change your heart. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so maybe you're wondering, well, what does God need to do in my life? What what does he need to change about me? I'm just going to encourage you to ask him. God, what what about me needs to change? What in my heart needs to be refined for your glory? I just encourage you, I'll challenge you to ask that question. Just be prepared for an answer and be prepared for it to not be comfortable. Because that's the experience I've had. Let God change your heart. Let him put a new spirit in you. Some of you are here today and and you're wondering, how how does that work? I I feel like I've got a spirit, seems to be doing okay, I'm here. Maybe you're here and you've never been baptized and you're wondering, well, why would I? Why would I? Uh, Doesn't doesn't it seem like that's just a man-made step? Well, I think the Bible seems to say that you're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit. God wants to put a new spirit in you. Not one that's corrupted or corruptible, but the very Spirit of God to lead you and guide you. And that happens in baptism. So if you haven't been baptized, I think you should consider that step today. But no matter where we are in our faith, one of the best ways to love God is to simply know that He loves us. I'm going to explain it in in a... uh, by quoting a post I saw on Facebook this past week. Uh, and it, was, it was two lines of text. Yeah, that's <laughs> the, the great uh, source of wisdom for all situations, Facebook. I don't know if you knew that. But, but uh, I, I thought this one really did a good job of summarizing what I've been thinking. And, and here's, what, here's what it said. There was two lines of text, and it was from a child who had messed up, and there were two different ways that they thought about the situation. They said, oh, no, I messed up. Better not tell dad. And the next line was, oh no, I messed up. I better go ask dad for help. See, when we don't know that God loves us, we respond, better not tell dad. Better keep this from dad. Better get this fixed. Better get this sorted out before I get dad. Better not tell dad. But when we know, how much our God in heaven loves us, we can say, I've got this problem and it's bigger than me and I don't know what to do and I just need your help. So one of the best ways to love people is to just know that God loves us. To know the incredible lengths that he went to to redeem us. So don't let that get far from your heart ever. God loves you. And that affects us on a daily basis. God loves us. When we know that God loves us, it's much easier to turn to him. When we know that God loves us unconditionally, it gives us a tangible motivation for obedience. And when we know what God has done for us, when we know that God is constantly and patiently changing our hearts by the power of his spirit, and that his love is unconditional and eternal, then we can begin to treat other people that way too. You see that that shift there? When we know the way that God loves us, when we begin to appreciate and believe the way God loves us, we can begin to treat other people that way too. And that's where Jesus goes next. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Here's what he says next. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we've talked about how to love God. Now we're gonna look at how we love our neighbors. And right off the bat, we've got an important lesson. Jesus says this is equally important. Equally important. Jesus is telling us, he's telling us that it's not possible to love God with all we've got if we're not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let me say that one more time. It's not possible to love God with all we've got if we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. In a very real sense, loving your neighbor is the practical application of loving God. So how do we love our neighbors? Well, we've been hearing it for a little while now started talking about it several weeks ago when Jesus says bear each other's burdens bear each other's burdens and can I tell you there are a lot of people out there that have large burdens and one of the most prominent burdens that we find is that there are people who live every day with no hope every day with no hope, they want it they're looking for it, maybe they've even tried to find it in a church or two and it just didn't happen And now they're looking for it everywhere. And whenever they don't find it there, they get just a little bit more desperate. Can I remind us all of something that we know? There is hope in Jesus. You know that. I know that. So many of our friends and neighbors and relatives don't know that and they want so desperately to find hope somewhere. We know what it's like to be lost and then found. We know what it's like to be blind and now see. We know what it's like to be controlled by sin and now be free. We know that we were far from God and we know that we are getting closer every day. We have hope and the most loving thing we can do is share that hope. Because I would sure want somebody to do that for me. What did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourselves. If I didn't have hope, I'd sure want somebody to give it to me. Now, I want to I just pause for a second here and, and make some clarifications. Because you're going, well, Tony, you're talking about evangelism. You're talking about sharing our faith with other people. And and I I think about evangelism, right? I've seen God's not dead. I can't do that. Okay? You're you're going, I'm just not trained well enough to do evangelism. I'm not trained well enough to lead somebody to Christ. I'm not talking about giving a theological treatise. Okay? I'm not talking about walking somebody through giant polysyllabic words and knowing what they mean. Nobody knows what they mean. Right, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying having the ability to say this is what Jesus has done in my life. Do you think maybe he could do that in yours too? So what has Jesus done in your life? And how can you share that with somebody you care about? Or maybe, maybe you're not comfortable with that yet. Maybe you're going uh, baby steps. Baby steps, Dr. Bob, baby steps. You're not quite ready for that. Got an option for you too. We got Easter coming up. We got Easter coming up. And out in the lobby, we've got these handy dandy door hangers. Why don't you grab a stack? Why don't you grab a stack and be creative with how you get rid of them? Okay, uh, I've got a couple of ideas for you I'm gonna share, but you think of other ways to get rid of these. Invite people to hear about how much God loves them. Maybe you go through the drive through sometime this week and you pay for the person behind you and you say, hey, uh, I'm paying for the person behind me, but would you just give this to them? Seems like a neat idea. Or maybe you're out in public and you hold the door for somebody and they say, oh, thank you so much. And you say, hey, it's my privilege. I'd love the opportunity to hold the door for you at church. Is that corny maybe it's corny I don't think it's corny awesome thanks for the feedback guys <laughs> I right, think of some different creative ways to get rid of these there's a whole bunch of them I want them all gone and I don't want to be able to see any red in these pews on Easter unless you're wearing a red shirt maybe you're a police officer and as you arrest somebody you just put it right there in the middle of the hand I'm just kidding just kidding about that one <laughs> um, all right Here's the deal. Uh, We want to be able to tell people about Jesus. We want to be able to tell people about how much God loves them. We want to be able to tell people about salvation and how great it will be. We want to show people what Jesus is like. And as much as we want to tell people what Jesus is like, the thing that we're really after is showing people what Jesus is like. We want to show people what Jesus is like. You see, there there are a lot of churches that will get you to heaven. We want to be a church that brings heaven here. You see that difference? There are a lot of churches that will get you to heaven. We want to bring heaven here. We don't want to just tell people about how great our God is. We want to show him through what he's doing in our lives. We want to begin to let God work in their lives as well. We want to be a church that brings heaven here. I saw a story recently about a group of high school basketball players in Texas. If you've heard this story, then just listen anyway. It's my sermon. okay? But uh, I, I heard a story about a group of high school basketball players in Texas, and uh, they were from a small Christian school, and they were playing a scrimmage against a basketball team from a juvenile detention center uh, for... Um, uh, felony offenders. So it wasn't just a regular juvenile detention center. It was a juvenile detention center for minors who had committed felonies. And in this uh, detention center, the the incarcerated young men who had good behavior had the opportunity to play on a basketball team. And this is the team that this small Christian school is playing a scrimmage against. And Every time that the the boys from the Christian school scored, uh, their side of the crowd would go nuts. Every time they had a steal or something went right, or they got a call, you know, their their fans, their parents, their girlfriends, the cheerleaders, their friends would go nuts and cheer for them. But two boys on the team started to notice something. There was nobody on the other side to cheer. They didn't have parents there. They didn't have friends there. They didn't have cheerleaders. And so after the game, these two young men, they went over to the coach from the detention center team and they said, hey, can we have a schedule? Can we have a schedule for the rest of your games for the rest of the year? And what these two basketball players did is they took it upon themselves to coordinate fans for this detention center team. So every time those boys played, they had people to cheer for them. They had people to clap for him. They had cheerleaders. And they began to begin, befriend that team. And I love that story. Here's what I love the most. They were interviewed later by the Dallas News. And here's what they said. They said, listen, everybody makes mistakes. But everyone deserves to be loved. I love that. And I think, I think as Jesus looks down, from his throne in heaven. And he hears teenage boys say things like that. He says, that's heaven on earth. And I love it. We got similar opportunities to show off God's love. Or we don't, We're not gonna probably go cheer for a juvenile detention basketball team, but we have opportunities to show off God's love in our community. We've got a Kids Hope program where we can spend an hour a week with a student who just needs a little bit of encouragement, just needs a little bit of attention, just needs somebody to sit down and work through a couple of math problems with them or tell them, you're doing great. And I think when Jesus says, all of you heading over to West Washington, he says, that's heaven on earth. And who's your help? When a trailer gets loaded up and a team of volunteers head off to Texas or Florida or maybe Nebraska or or, or wherever they head next, I, I can't help but think that from his throne in heaven, Jesus says, that's heaven on earth. And celebrate recovery where anybody who's struggling with a herd, a habit, or a hang-up can go and find a support system that's going to help them heal. And I think when Jesus hears the Celebrate Recovery group singing on Wednesday night, he looks down from his throne in heaven and he says, that's heaven on earth. In dyslexia ministry, it's getting started up so that students who are affected by dyslexia can get the support they need so they don't somehow feel like they're less than their peers. And I think when Jesus thinks about how that ministry's gonna look, he says, that's heaven on earth. There are a lot of churches that'll get you to heaven. We wanna be a church that brings heaven here. And sure, we could tell them about heaven, and we do. But I don't know about you, I think it's a whole lot more fun to show them. Because that's what Jesus did for us. He didn't tell us about how much God loves us. He came and he showed us. He didn't just write about the love of God. He didn't just preach about the love of God. He showed us the love of God. And even though he was equal with God, Even though he sat in the throne room of heaven, he didn't think twice about giving up his divine privilege. He came to earth and lived as a man, able to experience all the things we face from joy and sorrow and physical pain. He experienced all of that as we experience. And ultimately what Jesus said was, God loves you this much. I love you this much. He loves us enough to be punished for the sins that we've committed. And we talk about Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, but maybe if you're new to church, maybe you don't really know what that means. You don't know why he died. Let me just tell you, he died because sin requires a punishment. And all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned. He died because sin requires a punishment and all of us have sinned. He died for me. And you and every single person who has ever lived and every single person who ever will live and to accept the work that he's done for us, all we have to do is say, Lord, I need you. And the way God established for us to say that is in baptism, right over there. Now a lot of people say, well, why don't we just say it? Why don't we just say, Lord, I need you? And there are a lot of churches that, that operate that way. All you got to do is say, Lord, I need you, but I believe that Forgiveness is linked to this act of baptism for a couple of different reasons. First of all, actions always speak louder than words. Actions always speak louder than words. It's one thing to say, Lord, I need you. It is another thing entirely to say, Lord, I need you. To put skin in the game. And let me just remind you, Jesus didn't just talk about the love of God. He showed us the love of God. So if his example is one that we're going to follow, it's not an example of words, but of action. So today, if you need to accept the work of forgiveness that Jesus has already completed for you, I think you should do it. I think you should be baptized today. But maybe you're here, and you're looking for a reason to write off Christianity. Maybe you're looking for a reason to say, see I told you so. Can I just tell you I'm sorry for the ways that the church has hurt you? We mean well, but we don't always get it right. We are imperfect people, and we mess up. We get distracted, but when we're focused, our job is to point people to Jesus, and so I want to do that today. I know you're hurt, but Jesus wants to help begin that healing process in you, and it starts with these words. I forgive you. So I don't know what you've done. I don't know how you've been hurt and how you've responded to that hurt, but I know that each of us could deal with hearing those words, I forgive you. And those are the words that Jesus so desperately wants to say to you today. And for all of us, may we devote ourselves to loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as as ourselves so that we can tell our community, God loves you this much. Let's pray. God, we know that you love us and we rejoice in that knowledge. We thank you. We praise you for the work that you've done so that we can be forgiven. God, we ask that you would forgive us for the times where we, where we forget how much you do love us, the times where we take it for granted, the times we keep it to ourselves. God, would you fill us now with the knowledge of your love so that we can boldly go into this world as ambassadors? Please, God, Remind us of your love so that the light that's in us can shine brightly for all to see. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.